Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 4th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. He shook. The cost of living is out of control. What that means for some was raised by Sinn Féin in the Dáil yesterday. As they struggle to keep up with sky-high bills. Understanding what that means to people is the objective of Sinn Féin survey. My colleague Deputy Claire Coran has an online survey on the cost of living crisis. Now, since uh, this survey opened last week, some 14,000 people have responded. Mary Lou MacDonald relayed to TDs yesterday some of the responses they received, like this story from a woman named Siobhan. I am commuting from Quilty County Clare to Limerick to work. I'm paying upwards of 75 euros on diesel a week. That's an increase of 15 euro compared to June. The price of food is also rising. I'll soon have to buy oil for the house and that price is rising. I won't be able to afford my basic needs to survive. Another woman, Alison, told the survey too that living expenses are getting harder to meet. My husband and I both work. We have two kids. Our rent is €1,200 per month. Childcare for the two of them is over €1,000. We are drowning in debt, car loans and bills. My husband is now signed off as he is now suicidal. It is devastating. While a man named Kevin said, I work full time earning what's considered a decent wage, but I live month to month using my credit card for any extra spending. No nights out, no family holidays, no fancy house. I just work to pay essential living costs. I cannot plan for a rainy day. Some hard stories there, no doubt. Uh, And as you heard Mary Lou MacDonald uh, say, uh, they've uh, come about as a result of a survey that was carried out uh, by Social Protection Spokesperson for Sinn Féin, Claire Curran, who's on uh, the line with us now. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. 14,000 responses. It it sounds like a a lot of responses, but out of a, a population of, what is it, 5 million people in this country at this stage, does it really 
really reflect how life is for the majority of people in this country and does it really make the argument that your party leader was making in the Dáil yesterday that we should follow the example of the Czech Republic and reduce VAT on energy bills to zero percent? Good morning Michael. Yes look I suppose the first thing to say is I mean 14,000 responses to an online survey is I mean it's unprecedented in the surveys we have certainly been doing over the last year uh, we had just over 3,000 responses in under 24 hours of that survey going live. But look, I think I think if you leave the survey aside even and just look at the actual facts, mm. I mean, the, the government will keep telling you, you know, this is a worldwide phenomenon and costs are going up here, there and everywhere. Ireland is now the second most expensive place to live in the entire of the EU 27. That's a fact, you know, and the cost of living here is 36% higher than the EU average, that is absolutely, a, I mean, it's crazy. I mm. mean, the cost of living is out of control. And what we're seeing in the survey, uh, aside from the... And how does that compare to uh, wage uh, income and indeed social welfare payments? Well, that's exactly it as well. I mean, we know that across the board, every single social welfare payment is set below the poverty line. We know that obviously we haven't... Well, we know that the welfare payments are relatively generous in this country, don't we? We know that the minimum wage is one of the highest in Europe. Yes, the majority of the social welfare payments are yeah. 200 So you've got to compare well, apples well, with no, apples, no, don't you? No, 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 no. The, co- the, the majority of social welfare payments in the state are set at €203. Euro. The mm. minimum essential standard of living is €252. Euro. Every single social welfare rate is set below the poverty line, full stop. Mm. Every single organisation on the front line will tell you that. People are struggling. And the interesting thing about this survey is the vast majority of people that have actually taken this survey... But it's a very wealthy country. Relative to other countries, this is a very wealthy country. I mean, take your survey, for example. Uh, You canvassed uh, opinion from those who are worst off in this country. And we heard some very hard stories there from people who all have mobile phones, I take it, with access to the internet. Something that people in other countries can't even aspire to. I wouldn't say for, for a start that we canvassed anyone. We launched the survey and we put it yeah. up there. And as I've said, the majority of people who took this survey are working full-time. They are full-time workers. Uh, they're not relying on social welfare. They're going out to work every single day and they are the people that are struggling. And we might be one of the wealthiest countries of the world. That's great. But it's not great for people that are struggling. And what, what I mean, what's the reality here? Do we just leave it? Do we do nothing? Like, what's the actual reality of that? We have people responding to us. They're suicidal. Like, the, the impacts of this are, are absolutely enormous. And the impact of doing nothing as a result of it are equally enormous. We know that poverty is costing the state about €7 billion Euro a year. The Society of St. Vincent de Paul will tell you that. So the cost of doing nothing is absolutely not an option when you have people whose mental health is just struggling so much at the moment. Be- because, so of, because of their financial circumstances or do they have problems with their mental health? Because of financial circumstances, that's certainly the reason survey. And I saw this a year ago when I did a survey on household debt. A mental health was hugely impacted. And we know mm. we're facing a mental health crisis anyway. And I mean, we saw the, the response from the government. I know, but it's a dangerous link you're making. I, I'm not sure if you can stand over that link. Oh, no, I absolutely can stand over the link because that is what... That people are suicidal because of their financial circumstances. On. Yes. Absolutely. Because people have told you that in surveys. I don't think that's a verifiable way of looking at something like that. Uh, It's such a a serious and complex issue. 
It is a serious and complex issue. And in the budget, the government almost has their allocation of new spending for mental health. Anyone on the street will tell you we have a mental health crisis and it's not being tackled. And part of that is people who are struggling. Of course it is. Mm. Well, of course it is. And there'll always be people who are struggling. Uh, And some people have overstretched themselves and maybe some people are are spending money on mobile phones uh, instead of paying rent with it. Uh, I mean, uh, that goes back to the argument that we are living in a a very wealthy country, does it not? Wow. I mean, I I wouldn't say someone that has a mobile phone is... I mean, I don't even get that, to be honest with you. I mean, having a mobile phone, what what does that mean? Like, I mean, rents are through the roof. They mm. are absolutely astronomical. There was nothing in the budget to help renters. Landlords can increase rent in an awful lot of cases at whatever way they want to do it. And it's the tenants that struggle. Look at energy costs. There was nothing in the budget. It focused around the fuel allowance and a slight increase to eligibility that will only assist those on the fuel allowance. What about everybody else when energy costs are absolutely through the roof? Nothing in the budget for those people either. So we are in an emergency situation in relation to the cost of living. It is out of control. And we need to see the government act because if they don't act, then we have much wider consequences and those consequences okay. are high Well, we've rent pressure zones. Uh, they haven't uh, been the success, I suppose, that the government had hoped that they would be. So today the government is taking further action with uh, reducing uh, rents uh, to the line of inflation uh, unless that goes above 2% uh, and that cap will be at 2%. And the government, as you heard the Taoiseach say, yes, they did a lot in the budget in terms of helping workers uh, through tax breaks uh, and indeed uh, in terms of uh, the cost of, of energy by uh, introducing carbon taxes and so on. Yeah, I mean, a tax break that for your average worker will mean about a euro back a week when the cost of living and every single expense and outgoing that they have from bills to groceries are, are gone skyrocketed. So, I mean, a euro back a week isn't going to meet, mean much to the average family. And I mean, again, while we may be very wealthy in, in world rankings as regards the country, uh, you know, the people on the ground aren't. And I mean, what kind of a country are we? We may be wealthy and, and one of the richest countries in the world. But I mean, if people on the ground and families and workers are struggling, uh, then I don't think we have anything to shout about in relation to being rich. We need to look after those people, those people who are getting up every morning, getting up early every morning, mm. and going to work and are struggling. And we see that in the survey. And look, the survey is only a snapshot you know, we have the facts in relation to, as I've said, we are the second most expensive country in all of the EU 27 to live in. And people are feeling that. And they'll feel it even more now as we come into the winter period and people are turning on their heating. I spoke to somebody yesterday. He had filled his uh, his oil tank uh, and he'll have to fill it again in two or three weeks' time. They just can't. He's turned on the heating yesterday for the very first time. People are really struggling. And as I've said, these are workers. Mm. Uh, is it not the same elsewhere and everywhere for that matter uh, the Taoiseach said yesterday that gas prices have increased by 35% in Northern Ireland Yeah and, and as I said for in relation to energy costs it is a worldwide phenomenon they are increasing here there and everywhere but again that's fine but what are we going to do about it and that's the question mm. uh, and that's what we need to tackle in relation to energy down here and, and what Mary Lee McDonald had put forward yesterday was that idea of temporarily cutting VAT on energy bills and at least that is one action that the government can take to try and alleviate those costs for okay. families who will not be able to turn on the heating in some circumstances in homes across the state. Okay. I mean nearly 20% of people living in energy poverty we have a problem mm. and we need to act on it. it but could the cost of energy for everybody though wouldn't it uh, including those who have massive houses and use a, a lot of energy? 
but the alternative is do nothing and then and then what i mean people suffer more so you know we, we have to take action in relation to the issue otherwise uh, the alternative is do nothing we can't do that okay well of course the argument is uh, that the government is doing something and that they're trying to make homes more heat efficient we might go back uh, to the doll if you don't mind for a moment and hear more of uh, the exchange between your party leader mary lou macdonald and the taoiseach who was saying that the government did do a lot in fact uh, in his mind uh, for workers in the budget. As I said in the budget, we did give relief. You just choose to ignore it and in fact you opposed it. You opposed the tax relief that we gave to workers in this budget uh, and you were against it um, and which is up to 500 million in terms of workers on average incomes in this country. And furthermore I want to say to you in terms of your comments on carbon tax, it's about time you got off the fence on climate change because you're having, you are having an each way bet through the chair. You're having an each way bet every week every month in this house for the last number of years on the issue of climate and on the issue of of carbon tax, which gives us the funding, by the way, to help people on low income meet the increased energy uh, costs and the the energy prices. Um, And I I think that's so disingenuous from you that you continually, through the chair, seek to exploit, seek to exploit measures we've taken which are not popular, I accept, which are very important in terms of dealing with the climate emergency facing the globe and facing this country. And we... No, you don't take anything as a no. We have taken measures already to help people who are on low incomes in terms of of fuel poverty through the measures that we've taken uh, through the increased taxation. So, very strong criticism going both ways in uh, this debate, it would seem, and the government uh, accused of abandoning uh, the poorest in this country. The government saying Sinn Féin taking an each-way bet uh, on climate change and that the carbon tax helps to increase the likes of the fuel allowance. Uh, Is there any argument in that in your mind, Claire Coran? Oh, well, I mean, the idea that the carbon tax helps to increase the fuel allowance, I mean, the fuel allowance still isn't back to 2010 levels as regards the length of time it's paid for. And there are so many people locked out of the fuel allowance. If you lose your job tomorrow, you don't get the fuel allowance. If you get sick and have to leave your job and go on illness benefit, you don't get the fuel allowance. So it's not enough to say the carbon tax is helping to assist low-income families with fuel costs. Majority of low-income families get nothing to help them with fuel costs. So that just is simply totally untrue. And in relation to the carbon tax, if the alternatives were there, then we could look at the carbon tax. But, I mean, we've had the carbon tax for 10 years. It hasn't changed behaviour because how do you change your behaviour when the alternatives are either not there or they are unaffordable. And as someone who lives in a rural area who relies on a car, I don't have a bus. I don't have a Lewis at the end of the street. You know, I'm seven miles out from the nearest town. So what are the alternatives? And I mean, if you heap the carbon tax and you keep heaping it on people without the alternatives being there, then it is just a regressive tax on people and they're paying it, but they're locked in because they, they can't do anything. So had the alternatives been put in place, the investment in public transport, for example, been put in place, then look at the carbon tax, fair enough. But I mean, the alternatives aren't there and the ones that are there are totally unaffordable. That's the reality. I suppose a, a little bit like the man you were talking about a, a moment ago who got some oil last week but wasn't able to uh, afford a fill and have to get more oil in another few weeks uh, because uh, the weather is going to get colder. We really are only at the start of this conversation.
conversation uh, because uh, people are seeing increases in the cost of energy, but they're going to skyrocket, uh, I think, over the coming weeks and months. And FLAC, the Free Legal Advice Centre, issuing a, a report yesterday which says that the rising cost of living is going to put further pressure on families who are already struggling with indebtedness. Yes, exactly. And I mean, the majority of those organisations like the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, like those lone parent organisations, they will tell you just that because they're seeing it every single day. I mean, we know that the Society of St. Vincent de Paul spend between six and seven million helping households with energy costs every single year. So they're the ones paying out to try and support these families and clearly there is an issue there when you have a charity an organization that has to spend that level of money to help people with energy costs because the help from the government isn't there the fuel allowance is the only scheme they rely on when they say we're helping people with energy costs but the fuel allowance is so limited and the vast vast majority of people and workers don't don't get the fuel allowance so there is no support for them there and i do believe as has been said, things are only going to get worse. I mean, we're just facing into last night and the night before, very cold. We're still only in early November. Um, and, you know, we need to see the government act for those people who really will struggle. Those families, those children, those older people, persons with a disability, carers. You know, we need to act for those people and for those households. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on social protection, uh, Claire Curran, who's a TD for Roscommon Galway. Michael Reed on LMFM. Thanks to TJ who says, Michael, it's not just mobile phones. Uh, You see people who say they have nothing and somehow they're in the buckies every other day or they're down the pub and they also seem to have money for smokes while their children go around in rags. A text then from somebody who says, imagine giving OAPs five euro a week. How much does Leo get when he gets a pay increase. Uh, Mary Navin says, just listening in, and there's plenty of people out there who are getting the HAP allowance, so their partners are living with them, or they get everything uh, while other people are struggling, says Mary. Thanks uh, for that. Uh, a different Mary then, a different text says, uh, the government should have increased uh, the electricity units for the elderly. Uh, did they not extend it by a couple of weeks um, in the fuel allowance? Uh, I suppose that's different to the household uh, allowance, uh, but thanks uh, for that, Mary. Uh, it's an, a good idea, actually, now that I think about it. Uh, Deirdre and Kells uh, says, I hope that there won't be a- another lockdown with this COVID virus. If people would just get vaccinated, it wouldn't put so much pressure on the hospitals. It's an interesting text, uh, Deirdre. Thanks for it, uh, because uh, you get in touch with us after the Neffet briefing last night. Uh, and uh, we heard about how virulent this strain of the disease is, how widespread it is in the community, how it's occurring in people of all ages and how it's particularly bad if you're not vaccinated. But then what if none of us were vaccinated? Uh, I mean, 90% of us are vaccinated, aren't we? Uh, what, what if you can imagine just for a second, what if we never got vaccinated and what if uh, we weren't vaccinated and we were all going out and going about without masks on going down the pub hugging each other and doing all of the things that we used to do before COVID today when there is so much COVID what if we weren't vaccinated under such circumstances? There's different ways to answer that question but the simplest way to answer the question is to imagine that just right now 
we could turn off everybody's vaccine protection rather than going back in time. So, like, we turned off everybody's vaccine uh, uh, protection now uh, within a generation time, which is, you know, four or five days. Uh, you'd see somewhere north of uh, 10,000 cases a day. Um, and, and a generation time, if nothing else changed, if everybody freely mixed in society and uh, three or four days later, um, there's no reason to believe you wouldn't see four times that again. Uh, so they're unimaginable numbers in, in, in a way. So it's, it's a very good question to ask because it, un it underlines this huge job that vaccine protection is doing in keeping a very large number of infections, uh, uh, sorry, in interrupting a very significant number of transmissions and then everybody is reducing their level of social contact to a certain extent and observing basic measures to a certain extent so that's gaining us a little bit of extra suppression and that's bringing us from like in the wild this virus has a reproduction number perhaps delta variant somewhere five and eight for sake of argument any if there was nothing no protection in place any person would infect five to eight other people so the fact that any person right now is uh, is <clears throat> infecting on average 1.4 other people shows you just how much protection vaccination is offering and the added protection that the observation of the basic measures is uh, offering. Absolutely. No doubt, uh, isn't it? Just fantastic uh, that we have the vaccines and that so many of us have made the right decision to get vaccinated, protecting everybody, including uh, those who are not vaccinated, as well as those who have been vaccinated, because, uh, of course, it, it's uh, not a guarantee that you won't get COVID or get sick. But imagine that. Imagine if we weren't vaccinated and we were in that situation where we weren't following the restrictions and so on, that instead of 4,000 cases in a day, in four days' time, you'd have 16,000 cases. In four days after that, you'd have 64,000 cases. And I'll let you do the maths after that, but multiplying by four every four days or so. Uh, some more of uh, the comments coming to us. Joan is in Drogheda, and uh, Joan was listening uh, to Claire Coran speaking on the programme there. She said uh, the TD made a lot of sense. Good to see a political party interacting with ordinary people and getting the true picture in terms of uh, the cost of living and how so many people are struggling. It's all right to talk about climate change and all that needs to be done, but how can people who are already on the breadline afford these increases. Uh, Joan says uh, she's been sparse with her heating so far this year because of uh, the rise in the cost of fuel and she's really worried about it. Uh, Martin is in County Mead and Martin says, do you not think it is inevitable that we are going to have to reimpose restrictions? It's a free-for-all at the moment and while I want to go back to normal living like everyone else, I, I truly believe they should have held off on reopening nightclubs and light, uh, late night entertainment venues, uh, gigs and such like, have some restrictions uh, now so that Christmas won't be completely ruined. I think that must be a concern, Martin. Uh, they do seem determined uh, that they're going to keep going as was. Uh, by the way, there were a number of people uh, who called to the programme yesterday to complain uh, about the idea that it was OK to prevent children who have not been vaccinated from engaging in contact sport with other children. Uh, we were discussing this with Patrick Tobin. They were saying that's bad for their mental health and so on. 
uh, that uh, you can't do that to children. These are children after all. You can't uh, be so cruel to children. Uh, of course, there is no need uh, for that. Uh, the solution is very simple. If parents decide to get their children vaccinated, then they could all come together, as is the case with those who are vaccinated at the moment. Uh, I suppose an interesting question for you is, would you want your children to be rubbing heads with another child who has lice? Uh, would you allow your child to sit down and rub their head off a child who has lice? Uh, because I don't think it would be anywhere near as serious as uh, allowing them uh, to uh, be so close to somebody who has not been protected against this killer virus. Anyway, that's just some food for thought for you. Thank you to everybody who's been in touch with us so far today. Our lines are open as always and we'd love to hear from you. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Belfast was on fire again last night. An area near the Shankill Road set alight with missiles and fireworks. It was in line with a rally against the Northern Ireland Protocol and obviously by uh, the looks of it, at least, uh, because of uh, the age of some young children who were arrested. Uh, there's very young children, 12 and 15 years of age, uh, who are very concerned about the Northern Ireland Protocol. Or is uh, that the case? You would wonder. Pat Sheehan is Sinn Féin MLA for West Belfast. Uh, good morning to you, Pat, uh, and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, it seemed very unseemly, to say the least, uh, very dangerous. Uh, and uh, it went on for around five hours or so. Yes, good morning, Michael. And it's reminiscent of the scenes that we saw earlier in the summer when there was a similar protest in Lanark Way, which is an interface area between the Shankill and the nationalist Clonard Springfield Road area. Um, I actually raised this issue at a committee in Stormont yesterday because you may be aware that loyalists actually burnt a bus in Newton Ards uh, a couple of days ago uh, in protest again, seemingly at the protocol in the RIC border. Uh, and uh, the unionists at the committee yesterday condemned it. And I asked them, would they also ask the organisers of the protest in Lanark Way to ensure that they didn't hold the protest at the interface because all it was aimed at doing was raising tensions and provoking trouble. And that's exactly what happened. Um, uh, what happens in these situations is that there are a lot of uh, hangers-on who appear looking for a bit of trouble. And no one would organise a protest at an interface unless they wanted trouble. Unfortunately, I didn't get any response from any of the unionists who were at the uh, committee. And that's one of the problems we have, that there there is a lack of, of political leadership. There's a lack of uh, integrity. Uh, and there's dishonesty in around the the issues surrounding the protocol. Yeah. So what what we need from unionism is leadership in regard to this. I was on the street until late last night, and the police came under attack on on both sides of the interface. Yeah, where were you, uh, Pat? Were you apart? Where were you, Pat? Were you on the Springfield Road? Uh, because uh, I take it the idea was uh, to provoke Republicans. Yes, absolutely, and that's where I was, and we were trying mm. to calm the situation. Was that we difficult? Also, I mean, when yes, young fellas on the Springfield were uh, getting uh, rockets and whatever thrown at them, uh, I'm sure uh, they wanted to respond. Yes, well, you see, the, 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 the policing operation on its own must have cost tens of thousands of pounds 
because there would have been a very significant number of police on the streets. And when the people who are there to cause trouble can't get at each other, of course, uh, the police uh, then uh, suffer the brunt of, 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 of any trouble that happens. So it was a sort of cat and mouse affair. Um, the police trying to move those who were intent on trouble uh, further down the road. And then they were cutting through side streets and, and, and back alleyways and stuff to try and get back up to the interface. So it was a difficult situation. I don't think any police officers were injured. Uh, but there were a number of civilians. I spoke to one woman whose car was hit with a stone. Uh, she had a young child in the car, and unfortunately, neither was injured, but uh, it could have been worse. Mm. People can't believe it when they see uh, the peace walls still in existence. Uh, they're still necessary by the looks of it. Well, if you ask the people who live in the shadows of these peace walls, uh, they uh, feel they get some security. Uh, and uh, I mean, and that's understandable mm. because if people, if the if the peace walls weren't there, uh, and someone was intent on having a protest right up against the other community, mm. uh, people would be very fearful. Uh, so the, the the people who live in the shadow of these walls um, need to have some say in in terms of how they come down. There also needs to be political leadership, mm. of course, and we need greater integration in society here in general. And where was the um, leadership coming from yesterday in terms of organising uh, this rally? Who was bringing out these young children uh, to throw petrol bombs and whatever else they were up to? Well, uh, good question. Um, I saw it on social media uh, the night before last. Uh, of course, we contacted the police. The police and themselves were aware because of the social media messages that were flying about that a protest had been organised there. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's one of these sort of shadowy groups. Nobody really knows who the organisers are. It's just uh, classed as some sort of anti-protocol protest. But when we, when we ask unionist political leaders to intervene and, and try and ensure that protests aren't held right up against the interface, we get no response. Uh, and it, it sort of suits it sort of suits the unionists at the minute when negotiations are going on for tension to be inflamed and to create the impression that the unionist community is up in arms. And that's not what we're seeing on the ground here. Um, uh, unionists may well uh, be dissatisfied around the protocol, but they're having serious difficulties getting large numbers of people out on the streets to protest. Mm. Uh, and, and, and in the absence of that, uh, what they seem to be trying to do uh, is create trouble and tension at interface areas. Yeah, and because I guess you wouldn't, that's, unless, unless yeah. you wanted trouble, you wouldn't organise a protest. Oh, well, of course, yeah. But I, but, but I imagine the fear is and the concern is uh, that they'll be successful uh, because uh, when you see fellas getting on a, a bus uh, armed with guns and then setting the bus on light or the sort of scenes of Belfast on fire again last night, uh, your heart sinks, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we don't want to go back to those days. I mean, I lived through all the conflict years here. And, I mean, let's get some perspective on this. I mean, the the, the trouble last night was fairly low level. Uh, and that's not to excuse it in any way. Uh, and and, and it's, it's not to suggest there was no trouble at all. Uh, it's, it's, it's worrying, and particularly for those people mm. who live in that particular area, uh, others who were travelling through, and so on. So, 
Um, but it, it feeds into the bigger picture, doesn't it? Uh, the idea that Jeffrey Donaldson might collapse uh, the institutions. Uh, he may not have uh, the nerve to do that, but regardless of when the next election is, all of the unionist parties, it seems, are going to campaign on having uh, the protocol withdrawn. If not, they won't take their seats, possibly. If that happens, that's the end of power sharing. If they succeed, it's <laughs> just as bad, if not worse. Well, I mean, that's a matter for unionism uh, in terms of what they do about the political institutions. Uh, We want uh, the institutions to work. Uh, They're part of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, There are other parts of the Good Friday Agreement that we want uh, to work as well. One of those things is a referendum on unity at some stage in the future uh, after all the preparation for that has been done. The difficulty for unionism is where do they go if they collapse the institutions? Uh, they're actually supporting the narrative that the North is a failed political entity. Mm. Uh, and uh, in those circumstances, we, we then need to seriously consider uh, the notion of Irish unity. And, and mm. I mean, that's, that's, that's where we're going. I mean, yeah. I believe there's an irreversible thrust in that direction anyway. Uh, and unionism seems to be bereft of yeah. any strategic thinking uh, about how to deal with that situation. Well, you're, you're, you're right uh, to a large degree, but uh, on the other side of uh, that argument is uh, that uh, there will be rule directly from London, of course, uh, and therein lies uh, the problem and the concern uh, that there may be uh, about the stability of the peace process. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and, and that is always a concern. Uh, because if, if, if people didn't see it before, they've certainly seen it with this particular British government, that they don't care about the people here on this island. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Unionist. Uh, the British, this British government acts only in its own interests, and it doesn't care uh, about the people here. Uh, and that's, you know, it reinforces our argument that what we want uh, is as a new a state here on this island, you know, based on fairness and equality and justice. I mean, the unionists would have uh, much more influence in a new United Ireland here than they do in, 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 you know, as a very small number within the UK. And, uh, I mean, I think more and more unionists are coming round to that argument. They've seen how they've been treated uh, in relation to uh, the referendum here on, on Brexit where a significant majority voted against Brexit, but their wishes were completely yeah. ignored. Okay. So uh, that's the situation we're in. All right, um, Pat. It's, 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 uh, it's a fairly unstable situation. It sure but, is. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. positive about the future anyway. Okay. Well, let's hope uh, that there's reason for that positivity. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Good to talk to you. Pat Sheehan, Sinn Féin, MLA for West Belfast. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM. Peter in was on the phone to us. I think Peter's a, a bit worried. He said, like everybody else, he couldn't wait to, to get the vaccine and he, he thought it was going to be our saviour. Uh, but like everyone else, for that matter, he's disappointed that it hasn't halted the spread of the virus. At least most people aren't getting as sick when they do catch COVID if they are vaccinated. And Peter says we should be grateful for that. It should be an eye-opener for people who are choosing not to get vaccinated. And he says, I think booster vaccines are likely for all of us, and I'll be happy to get one. This is a pandemic that we're dealing with. We're learning as we go, but if we all decided not to get the vaccine, 
vaccine. Imagine what the case figures would be in the number of deaths. We have a responsibility to others as well as ourselves. Thanks uh, very much uh, for that, Peter. I think we heard the answer to that question earlier on from Professor Philip Nolan saying that those numbers would multiply by four every four days or so uh, and uh, that really is a frightening statistic. It's going to be a very busy day for the government. Uh, the Cabinet will meet today as you've been hearing and they'll be signing off or at least the expectation is uh, that they'll be signing off uh, on um, the Green Plan, the Climate Change Implementation Plan and we'll be hearing the detail of uh, that later in the day. That's if you haven't read the papers uh, this morning. Uh, they're also due to look at a uh, new cap on rent uh, in rent pressure zones uh, of 2% uh, or to the price of inflation if it doesn't exceed that. Let's uh, talk to John Mark McCafferty of Threshold. Very good morning to you, John, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, This is that increases would be allowed in line with the price of inflation up to 2%. Uh, How does that sound to your ears? Good morning, Michael, and listen, thanks very much for having me on. Um, yeah, look, it's it's welcome. Um, obviously, um, the consumer price index or inflation has ramped up just as the government changed the law from 4% to the, to that uh, to an inflation-based um, approach. So there's a certain irony to this, but I think um, government has responded and, and we're saying that, you know, the, uh, the maximum increase will be 2%. Now, that... That's a moderation, um, but rents are still going one way, and that's up. And for many people, they're already struggling with the rents and have been for 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 many years. Um, and we see the the cost of of, of and the impact of um, a lack of affordability in the rental sector. You know, through our threshold advisors, we're we're advising, assisting, and private renters. One of the, the main sense of the 2015 has been to have rents, rent increase throughout the country. Um, initially, obviously, in city, the rent hikes are pretty much in areas immediately outside the cities. Uh, in other areas, um, given people maybe uh, reinventing or, or spending more time um, in, in the provincial towns. So um, it's welcome. Mm. A two two percent is better than linking it to inflation, which might be at four or five percent, which uh, is even higher than the four percent um, mm. annual increases afforded by the rent, the old rent pressure zone legislation. And do these However, caps work? Uh, because uh, I mean, as you say, those caps have been there, but people have been saying they've been asked for more than that uh, in uh, their uh, rent when it, the landlord comes to them with it increases, uh, and they feel that they can't do anything about it. They're afraid to do anything about it because uh, if uh, they end up having to move out, they could end up paying more in rent. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, the the work in part, um, I think we do serve to moderate the rent increases. But you're absolutely right. Um, there are many tenants who are worried about approaching a landlord and, and challenging um, an unfair or in, indeed legal um, rent increase. They're uh, afraid to challenge because um, they don't want to lose their tenancy, um, or they've been in kind of negotiation with the landlord to do with maybe improvements in, in a home. So um, any kind of dispute they feel might. Uh, compromise their ability to, to get other things done in the home um, and they just feel uh, there's a 
that there's an inequality of arms that if they if they do challenge a landlord, then they may see a, a, a you know a notice of termination. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it's it's not completely straightforward just because um, the law says there's a two percent increase or a four percent increase maximum. Mm. And that can only be realised if it's enforceable. And is it fair on landlords uh, to say that rents can only increase in percentage terms? Uh, does it not matter how much is being charged? If somebody has had a, a tenant in their house, a landlord has been renting out to somebody, let's say, for the last 10 or 20 years and they haven't increased the rent in, in that time, uh, should somebody be able to move in if that tenant moves out at the same uh, type of rent uh, plus 4% or 2% as will be the case now? Yeah, and again, um, it, it's a kind of a key question in terms of the retention of landlords. And you will have some landlords who, who didn't increase um, the rents um, according to, to, to the market uh, movements and then find themselves kind of a bit isolated. But I think over the years, um, even with a 4% increase since 2016 on in the areas that were rent pressure zones back then, and, and given that there's an increase in, in those locations now, more, more of the, and in fact, the majority of the countries covered by those rent pressure zones, like I suppose landlords have had uh, more of an opportunity to mend their hands because, you know, with the rent pressure zone legislation been around for five years, that's five years of a 4% increase. Mm. So while um, some landlords might find that their their rentals are are, are lower, the the levels uh, of return are lower than maybe others that, that pegged it according to the market all the way through, and I still think that, you know, on balance, um, if um, landlords have been increasing by 4% um, annually since 2016 or since whenever the rent pressures with legislation came into their locality, um, that, that there's still a, a fairly favourable uh, return for mm. most landlords. Well, uh, is that part of the problem or, or is it possibly part of the problem that perhaps landlords wouldn't have increased uh, the rent over the course of uh, the last five, last five years, but they felt that if they didn't do it, that they'd lose the chance to do it. So they've been increasing at 4% year on year. Yeah, well, I guess that's the um, unintended consequence of any kind of interaction you, you, or intervention you have in the housing market. But I guess that the alternative is not to have any kind of rent moderation. Um, and I, I think that would have uh, caused deeper and more widespread hardship among renters if there was no um, form of kind of uh, rent pressure moderation or you know, tie, limiting those increases to um, inflation. Yeah. And I think you know, all of this is a kind of a delicate balance between um, the rights of the landlord, the, the rights of the tenants yeah. and, and their needs. Um, many of whom are on lower or sixth incomes, um, and indeed the the ability for for, uh, landlords to make a return and to stay in the market, because we do have an issue of, of, of some landlords leaving the market um, and so, uh, well, I was just going to ask whatever. you that. Uh, some landlords or landlord representatives will tell you that uh, this type uh, of cap will result in landlords just saying it's not worthwhile. They'll throw their hands up and say to hell with it and uh, they'll sell up. And that will only make the situation worse because there'll be less properties available for rent. Yeah, and look, supply is uh, one of the main issues, one of the main problems and worries for, for ourselves because you know, about a quarter of our, our people live in the private rented sector and the vast majority of those do so being housed by um, landlords that have only one or two properties. 
Um, and so it's important that um, there is a balance struck to ensure that those landlords remain in the sector while at the same time protecting tenants. So it's no easy feat. Um, and I think that's why, you know, there isn't um, a rent uh, moratorium uh, and increase, you know, so, so rents can still increase, but they, they're just being allowed to increase at a much more moderate um, way. And I think mm. an, another issue is really about the tax treatment of smaller landlords. Um, there's very, very favourable tax arrangements for the big institutional landlords, um, you know, that are making big profits. Yeah. Um, but there's, I think there is scope there to look at the tax treatment of, of smaller landlords and to change things there to um, make things more favourable uh, for those landlords to enable them to remain in the sector while at the same time uh, protecting the rights of tenants. Because, uh, uh, you know, just to get a plug in there, mm. Michael, yeah. uh, we launched um, a public campaign there uh, this week um, on owning your rights, um, tenants' rights, and I think it's really important, you know, we are a tenants' rights organisation. We are advising and assisting tenants throughout the country. Um, and it's really important that people know that, that we, Threshold, are there to assist people. Um, so I don't, if, if I can um, just uh, mm-hmm. reiterate our, our number, 1800-454-454. That's 1800-454-454. Also on our website, threshold.ie, we have a web chat um, facility. Mm. And throughout the day, and it's really important that you know we're, we're putting that message out there because there is, in fact, a lot of people that don't know that we exist. Um, yeah. In fact, we, we did a survey um, over the last week uh, to feed into this campaign, and we found that four out of five private renters say that um, they know little to nothing about the help that's available out there. And I think we, we were at pains through social media, through um, uh, on-street advertising, to to let people know. That we um, that we exist and we're there to advise, support, and advocate on behalf of renters. Okay, and I'm just looking at the chat box there now, and indeed uh, the telephone number on your website. So there's a, an awful lot going on there. One eight hundred four five four four five four is uh, the number, and that's open uh, weekdays, uh, as you say, uh, from nine to nine. Uh, just one other thing, if I, I could ask you, John Mark, uh, yeah. is the approach that we're taking to rent uh, very simplistic? Uh, is there not a, a more uh, complex way of approaching this, which would take more time and effort, but would be fairer to all, that if local authorities were to look at different uh, streets in their town and literally go street by street, and let's say you say Main Street in the town has a rental value of uh, between X and Y, uh, and in terms of today's rents, let's say it's somewhere between 1500 and 2000 So if uh, the apartment or whatever it is is uh, somewhat ramshackle, you might get 1500 for it, uh, and and at the top end of the scale, 2000 uh, and that those uh, rents would be uh, adjusted then by the local authorities on an annual basis, rather than this 2%, whether it's 1500 or 2%, whether it's 2000 Yeah, I, I think that's laudable. Um, I guess you're relying on the local authority to have the capacity to, to do that, and it would be hugely administratively burdensome. Our experiences, and, and it's the reality, it's borne out by government's own reports, the National Oversight and Audit Committee reports, that the local authorities um, are really struggling and, and are failing to inspect, adequately inspect private rented properties um, and follow up on um, those properties that fail those inspections. 
Um, so they just simply don't have the capacity to, you know, um, go into that kind of level of granular detail to kind of set rents and, 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 and police them. And I think, um, all things considered, it's, it's probably best use of uh, resources that there's a more a general um, approach taken. It's crude, but I, I think um, just given the lack of resources or the lack of capacity uh, from a housing point of view at local authority level, um, I think it's a, it's a that would be a level of detail that I, I think most local authorities would really struggle to implement. Okay. We leave there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. John Mark McCafferty of Threshold. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, it goes without saying at this stage uh, that climate change, reducing carbon emissions and saving the planet is uh, to the fore as a result of COP26. Can you explain the purpose of publicly signing up to a 30% reduction target when it seems you've no intention of even even attempting to achieve that? That's Roisin Shortall raising uh, the issue of signing up to reducing methane emissions by 30% with the Taoiseach yesterday when the Climate Action Plan, which will be published this afternoon, will call for cuts of just 10%. We know that Ireland has the second highest greenhouse gas emissions per person in the EU. Agriculture and transport account for the majority of emissions, 35% and 20% respectively. Clearly, we have to focus on these two areas. In agriculture, the government itself seems riven on the plan. Eamon Ryan insists the National Herd will decrease, while Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael members have mysteriously started to use the phrase stabilisation whenever the National Herd is mentioned. Which is it, Taoiseach? Is it decrease or stabilisation? Now, the Taoiseach wasn't uh, buying into those arguments. I think you're being somewhat, through the chair, the deputy's been somewhat disingenuous here. Read the pledge. Read what people have signed up to. It is a global pledge. So globally collectively, in different ways and through different mechanisms, countries who sign up will contribute to that overall 30% global reduction in methane. And methane emanates, as we know, from a range of human activities, including oil and gas extraction, which we've taken steps in this House uh, to limit it. Deputy Barry, it's not your turn. Uh, Coal mining, for example, landfill, as well as agriculture. Okay. So there's a variety uh, of, of means. Uh, and it recognises, the pledge recognises that countries have varying methane emission profiles. That's uh, the Taoiseach Michal Martin speaking in the Dáil yesterday. Let's speak uh, to Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley, who is uh, his party's spokesperson on uh, climate action in uh, the Shannon and uh, indeed uh, a member of the Oireachtas Committee on Climate. And a very good morning to you, Timmy Dooley, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. What are you expecting to hear from the Government Action Plan today? Will the intention be to cut methane by 30% or to cut it by 10%? Morning, Michael. Um, Well, I'm, I'm expecting that there will be a comprehensive plan today that sets forward through various different sectors how Ireland intends to meet its commitments across a whole range of issues. Now, I'm a little disappointed over recent months that the whole debate around climate change is being targeted and focused on agriculture and farmers in particular. And it's coming from a certain set uh, that I think is unfairly targeting farmers. I've spoken to them. I represent farmers. um, I work with them. I come from a small farm myself. So I understand and and, and appreciate, uh, you know, the difficulties farmers are going to have 
in changing their practices. But they're up for it and they're prepared to do it. Um, and it's okay for Roisin Chartal and others who don't understand farming or don't come from farming communities to just bandy around targets and suggest agriculture uh, can continue by cutting the herd. Now, or Ursula, Ursula von der Leyen who says it's uh, the low-hanging fruit. It may be the low-hanging fruit in Germany, but it's not the low-hanging fruit in Ireland where our economy, our workforce in so many cases through you know the, the onward production of, of farming produce mm are very dependent on it. So cutting the national herd sounds an easy thing. But well, the Taoiseach the seemed to be saying there was other ways of doing it, and I suppose well, just going back to the question said, that I yeah, put originally to you, do you expect yeah. that the government will, in its plan today, announce that methane will be cut by 30% or that it will be cut by 10%? My understanding is and my expectation is that it will be cut by 10% from the agricultural sector. But as the Taoiseach in that clip identified, methane emanates from other practices and will be cut significantly under other headings. But we're fo- focusing on agriculture mm. because it's this easy one. Are you for culling the national herd or are you for cutting or are you not? The, the stabilisation of the national herd, to me anyway, means retaining the number of cattle uh, that we currently mm. have. And we've got to get more efficient as to how we manage that that herd but, in terms of the methane. But how do we get up to the 30% if it's only a 10% cut of methane from agriculture, do we close power stations or what do we do? No, you, you don't have to, but you can reduce the output of methane from other practices, whether it be the better use and management of landfills. Um, other energy production areas obviously will have to change, and we see that because of the targets that are being set. Like by 2030, uh, the target is and has been there for some time, the ambition is there, to have up to 70% of the electricity that we generate um, from renewable sources. So that's a very considerable um, target over on that side. Yeah, we're, um, we're already in trouble in that Tishik, sense. Are we Tishik has rightly identified... Well, we're, we're, we're not really, because there's, there's quite a lot of offshore wind projected to come on to the grid in the near future. And from the people that I speak to in Airgrid and elsewhere, they believe that we will surpass that ambition because of the level of investment that has gone in. I was at a briefing yesterday by Tagus, uh, where they recognise um, the job of work ahead uh, and they're up for it and they're developing scientific models in relation to the feed that cattle will consume in relation to the point at which animals will be slaughtered. So with better genomics and better planning and better con- you know, feedstuffs to cattle, better, better management of that, that the average slaughter age can come down from 27 months to 24 months. Mm. That in itself uh, is understood uh, to have the potential to reduce by 12.5%. In years uh, from now. Well, the target is 2030, you know. We've got to do this in steps. And what the 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 deal that was signed up to both here and, and across Europe is recognising that in order to get to those levels, mm. and in the recent carbon budgeting that was, was talked about, talks about investing heavily for the, the, the next five years, for, for the five years ahead, and that that will pay dividends in terms of the reduction uh, in outputs in this uh, in the second five years. Okay, so but you've got to put the money in now. It's the same as will happen with the transport sector. But it, well, if you look at your neck of the woods, just going back to what you were saying about offshore wind, uh, I'm sure you were reading the Irish Examiner uh, with great interest uh, this morning. A two billion wind farm seems to be scrapped uh, because uh, the developer Equinor is pulling out. Uh, yeah, but that's not at all the case. I've just, funnily enough, just before I, I took mm. your call, I came off the, the phone with, 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 with senior management in the ESB and I have been reassured, as they have already stated, that the projects are still ongoing 
Uh, Equinor, for their, their own reasons, have withdrawn as a partner from that particular project. ESB own the projects. They're still the same people that were working on the project yesterday are working mm. on it today and will continue. And at, at some time in the future, when it becomes necessary for a new partner to be identified and taken on board, that'll happen. Well, you'd wonder how well it'll happen because this is a Norwegian company and they do it probably better than uh, anywhere in the world, don't they? And they're um, concerned about the regulations and uh, the obstacles well, in they planning. they have their own issues. I, I, I think the issues, and, and I don't want to speak for that company, they'll, they'll speak for themselves, but at least my understanding from the research that I've been able to do mm. in, in the last sort of 12 hours is that they're looking at investment profiles around the world and they may decide to put the capital in somewhere which will give them a return sooner. Reality is that project in Money Point um, is, is, is planned for the turn of the decade, so it's, it's not expected mm. to be in place until 2030. Mm. Um, so from an ESB perspective, they see nothing. And from this decision the methane perspective, it would be nothing. But having said that, 80% of the methane that is generated in this country comes out of uh, the mouths of cows, does it no, not? Absolutely, it, it does. So, and that's going to take work, so, and that's why I'm saying... So we only reduce that by 10%. Where does the other 20% come from? Well, it, it is going to come from other sources, whether it be the generation of, of, of energy, um, from better use and management of landfills that are becoming, as you know, we have phased out landfills. And well, now, could you blame Roisin Shortall for thinking that Michal Martin was making commitments that he couldn't fulfil? No, no, no. I, I understand Roisin Shortall's approach to politics. I get that from an opposition point of view because it's lazy and easy but 80, to target farm. 80% comes but from the cows. Like, so I that leaves 20% that has to be cut. And no, where is it going to come from? What also said was that... In, in, in cooperation across, so the 30% cut is, is, is a global cut. Ireland will play its part. If you're a, a, a coal mining country uh, and they're closing coal mines, we're reducing less coal, then there's a trade-off uh, on that side of things. So it's, it's a global. It doesn't mean that... So we'll buy carbon credits or the equivalent of that. Necessarily. I don't think we're, we're, into that, we're into that phase of, of activity. What we're looking at is collectively in a global sense the countries that have signed up to this deal will will based on Ireland has But there has to be a trade off, doesn't there? I mean if we're not reducing methane and a coal producing country is, surely we have to buy carbon credits or the equivalent of that to trade off that. Um, that's it. That's ultimately if there, is a, if there is a traded entity, and I can't tell you that that's what's going to happen. What I'm saying to you is there's an agreement mm. between the countries that collectively they will reduce the methane output. Like but it, but, but it does mean that Ireland has committed to reducing methane, but it's not going to reduce methane by 30%. It has committed to participation in doing whatever it can, and it has indicated that from agriculture, and that's what it has signed up to, a reduction target of cutting emissions from agriculture by 10%. There will be other targets in other areas. Collectively, that will be taken into a global scene because, it's you know, bottom line emissions are not uh, just relevant to a, within a particular border. Each country has to do what it can and what it what it commits to, which is what the Taoiseach has done, that will feed into a, a, a global total, um, and which has to be at 30% of the countries will work that out together. And Ireland is playing its part, and agriculture is, is very much playing its part. Okay. There's, 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 like, nobody is talking about what has to happen in transport as well, and that's going to affect people uh, in Roisin's constituency mm. that might have two cars. I mean, I'm taken aback at times when I when I visit the city, as I do every week, and the number of heavy gas guzzler uh, 4x4 jeeps in areas where there's clearly no need for them. 
Okay. Um, and nobody is targeting that, but it's the lazy and easy approach. Let's cut the national herd. Let's put it down on the rural people rather than saying, hang on a second, what are we doing in our cities? Why do we see so many very large 4x4 vehicles just dropping kids off to school or engines running outside waiting for the children to come okay, out? Well, maybe that'll be addressed in the Climate Action Plan well, I, when it's published today. I mean, okay. I mean it will, but it's never commented on by certain sectors because it's, it's this lazy debate that somehow the farmer is the cause um, of climate uh, destruction. Mm. And in truth, we all, across every sector of society, have a role to play. Ah, yeah. and, no, and, no, 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 I, I think you're stretching it a bit there now with respect to you. I think what they're saying is that you can reduce global warming very quickly by reducing the amount of methane in the atmosphere. Uh, and that can be done very quickly because you don't need to uh, farm as many cattle as we do okay. and they produce the vast majority of methane in the atmosphere. Of, of oh, and I, I know, and there are the arguments, but it, it's not... But you, could also reduce, you could also reduce very significantly uh, the CO2 emissions mm. if we halved the number of cars on the road. Mm. Mm. Um, if we said to families uh, across the cities, or large cities where the bulk of the vehicles are, sorry, mm. you have access to adequate public transport, mm, mm. make the most of it, and now there should only be one car per house, or we're only going to allow you to have an engine uh, of 850 cc's, which mm. will be more than adequate to reach uh, the speed limits. Okay. But we still allow the sale of 3-litre, 4-litre, and 5-litre vehicles. So, I mean, there's, there's an element of personal choice here, and I think it's a lazy argument to continue to target the farming community, because it, like, for, every, for every gallon of milk that's mm. produced, for every kilo of beef that's produced, it's not just the farmer that benefits. In many cases, they're just price takers. They, 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 they struggle to survive, to feed their families. So reducing the number will, will change their livelihoods. But it will also change the livelihoods of the people who work in the meat. No, factory. absolutely. And we'll, all wa- and we'll all want beef so, or whatever so, it is, or yeah. a pint of milk, a but the price of, of which will obviously increase as a result. But it's, mm. but, but, but it's mm. more than that. It's mm. the people who work in the production of all of that mm. for export. And so that... like. This idea of you could quickly cut our targets or, or you could quickly cut our output, what would be the economic impact of that? It's not just farmers. And I think mm. there's a and what, and what would be the cost of not doing it? Uh, I mean, they are the arguments, you know. But uh, oh, oh, no, I agree. And yeah. the point mm-hmm. I'm making is, yes, it has to be done in a, in a, in a way that allows for that transition. Mm. Um, and by the same token... Uh, of course, there will be a reduction in, in the output of okay. transport. But there's nobody saying drastically, let's remove half the cars on the streets of our capital cities or our major cities uh, overnight, because that would have a, a major oh, okay. Um, okay. negative well, I think I think not too long ago I was asking you if we could have one-way streets in towns, reduce half the cars and make the other lane <laughs> available for bicycles <laughs> and so on, and these scooters and be, or whatever. That'd be, that'd be good uh, too. All right. Okay, listen, I have to leave it there. I'm way over time, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Much appreciated. And we'll hear from uh, government uh, around four o'clock today when it, it publishes uh, the Climate Action Plan. But that's uh, Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Imagine the idea that women and children are at a very real risk of grievous trauma or injury or of a fatality, and unnecessarily so. It's completely Dickensian and it is something that uh, could be prevented. Uh, This is according to Safe Ireland, which was in front of uh, an Oireachtas committee yesterday, one of uh, the groups that uh, told uh, about a problem with services that led to some 369 
requests from women and children who wanted to flee from domestic violence having to be turned down because there wasn't room and refuges for them. Let's uh, speak to Lisa Marmium, Services uh, Development Manager with Safe Ireland. Uh, Dickensian uh, is one word, uh, I think, uh, Lisa, uh, but it certainly is uh, beyond belief. Uh, I think to most people listening to us this morning who don't find themselves or don't know people who find themselves in a situation of crisis on that scale. Absolutely, Michael. And good morning and thanks for inviting us today. Um, absolutely, um, we have a 19th century infrastructure for a 21st century wide-scale uh, social problem. Um, and it is really, really difficult for services to continue to uh, to not be able to provide the support necessary when people take that brave step of coming forward. Um, you know, even during the uh, in the height of the pandemic, uh, from March to, from March to December 2020, there were 2,159 requests for refuge that couldn't be met. Um, and we know, Michael, because I know I'm familiar with mm. the show. We've been on a number of times over the years, mm. working with Women's Aid Dundalk, and it was always a, a really um, horrendous experience for services who who can't accommodate those in need. Mm. It really is, uh, and uh, you must be very, very worried uh, when uh, you have to say no to people that there is no room at the inn uh, as such. Uh, and I, I take it uh, that uh, you'd ask people to keep in touch with you and to, to follow up best you can or to find alternative accommodation, uh, emergency accommodation, if that was possible. Yes, Michael, that's, you know, the services work really hard at trying to place people. And, you know, I would love to say that this is always successful, but it's not. Um even with uh, supplementary measures like the Airbnb initiative that, that continues and the introduction of domestic violence rent supplement, we're still providing less than a third of what the recommended um, refuge provision is. Like in the most recent uh, Way of Country report, we ranked 36 out of 46. Mm. So it's really, it's horrendous and it's hugely disappointing. Mm. We could do much more. It's by design, is it, or, or uh, by oversight, maybe may more accurately put? Well, you know, I would say a combination of um, a combination of lack of investment. There really mm. came into sharp focus, particularly in COVID, where you know there are buildings. We work with members across the country. There are refuges. Nine of those were communal, and therefore, with, you know, with public health measures, were not able to operate to full capacity. So we came into the we came into the pandemic with the shadow pandemic, which is this issue, and we were already um, only operating at a third. That was further reduced by about twenty five percent because of uh, our need to keep each other safe, our need to socially distance, our need um, to adhere to the public health measures in order to try and stay, stay safe. So you know, it came into sharper focus, Michael. Mm. That it's been, it's been a hugely under-resourced area, and you know we're living with that now. Mm. Yeah, but few of us are living with it, and I wonder if uh, that is part of the problem. As I said at the outset, uh, it's not something that uh, most of us uh, are familiar with in our, our day-to-day lives. Uh, is 
that what needs to change and you know I mean that uh, in an unfortunately terrible sense if we were here tomorrow morning talking about some woman who had been killed by a violent partner and had tried uh, for a long period of time to escape uh, that relationship but couldn't because there wasn't space for them nowhere to go uh, there'd be outrage obviously and people would be asking why that is the case and why could something not be done to help that person and we'd all be thinking and talking about it uh, is that the kind of drastic incident that needs to happen for public awareness and uh, then uh, the awareness and uh, the focus from decision makers you see i'm going to say michael unfortunately we've lost already too many in circumstances, you know, at the, ha- at the hands of, of someone that they should be safest with. Um, and it hasn't. We're still here um, all of these years later. You know, I've had the privilege of working in this area now, <laughs> clocking up 21 years. Mm. And I haven't seen a huge amount of change. Mm. Like what we're asking for is, I mean, resources are obvious. But, you know, strategy is much, you know... It, yields a lot of change if there was a single um, dedicated ministry where it brings all of the government departments together to work cohesively and we could really affect change there um, you know there, this issue is everywhere and sometimes nowhere you know there's various departments that have it within the remit but are not necessarily working together um, there are things that we could we could change um, that, you know, I'm not going to say it's mm. easy. All change requires energy and time, but it's within our gift. We could do this if we actually had the will to do that. Uh, and it does start with the political will to do mm. that. Yeah. And it's not just the services, uh, that, because you're a crisis service. Uh, it's uh, from a very early age uh, where uh, mindsets uh, can be influenced and uh, this attitude, whatever is wrong with people uh, that they act this way, uh, Perhaps uh, something could be done to change that. Absolutely. Michael, we have such great opportunity to affect change. Um, and it does, as you rightly say there, it starts, you know, it starts with children and young people. And, you know, uh, our, our attitudes towards this issue, bringing this issue out into the light. You know, we need to counter what a perpetrator of abuse does. Mm. A perpetrator of abuse silences people, threatens them, um, controls them. Uh, regulates their movements we need to make people's worlds much bigger okay. and we can do that and you see the important part there of there are frontline services of course and they are specialists in this area but you know not meaning to be preachy we can all do something about this yeah. issue I think we could. Uh, we've uh, been talking, uh, I've been talking to you, I think, for <laughs> the <laughs> best part of the 21 years uh, that you've been working so, in the yeah. so My best memories, Michael. Um, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, but I, I think uh, one of the things uh, that uh, has changed positively is a, an attitude and approach that's been taken by Angarda Siakon in that time period. And they certainly are more focused on it now and they're clamping down on it and they're uh, responding to calls much better, responding to people much better. Uh, and indeed, uh, they're taking charges against people and securing prosecutions for that matter? Oh, they're to be absolutely commended. I mean, Operation Fuishev, um, they were so proactive. The messaging that went out there is this is a priority issue and proactively contacting uh, survivors of this issue sent a very clear message both to them and also to perpetrators that this issue is going to be taken in the seriousness that it deserves. You know, and we need to hold on to a lot of these positive things that emerged um, through COVID. 
Uh, and again, that's a lovely example of working together. We worked quite closely with uh, on Garda Síochána. We were able to relay how the the initiative was being experienced on the ground and provide mm. feedback. But that kind of joined up working um, makes a huge difference to survivors. Yeah. I think uh, the message uh, for women listening to us uh, today uh, who may be in an abusive relationship uh, and may be worried about themselves or their children or people who may be worried about women and their children is uh, don't be too concerned uh, about the idea of the lack of resources. If you're in that situation, seek out help. And there is help and there is very good help and there's great support for people who are in that situation. Uh, Will I give the number for Dundalk, Lisa? Okay. All right. Well, listen, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, Nice to talk to you again. Uh, And uh, thanks, uh, as I say, uh, Lisa Marmium Services uh, Development Manager with Safe Ireland. Now, the telephone number for Dundalk Women's Aid is 042-933-3244. That's 042-933-3244. There's plenty of help and advice for you. Uh, and uh, you certainly won't be judged or asked to do anything that you don't want to do, but uh, it's worth making a, a call uh, if and when you can, if you are in that situation or if you're worried about somebody who's in that situation. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to a local issue that was raised in Leaders' Question during Doll Time yesterday. Taoiseach, I want to talk about one business in Dog that has contacted me. They're called Airburn. It's a trampoline parking dog and it's a fun and fitness for both kids and adults. It's a great place for children and friends to visit. In fact, it's also a wonderful place for parents of autistic and disability children to bring their much to bring their children and to, to, to a much needed leisure of activities. This is Peter Fitzpatrick, which is uh, who is concerned about rising insurance costs and what this will mean to this local business. Taoiseach, on the twelfth of December, Airborne, a trampoline park in Indoor is going to close. And the reason it's going to close is they can't get insurance. It's not their fault. Nobody wants to get them insurance. They want to pay the insurance. They've been there for a number of years. What am I going to tell the parents that's contacting me at the moment that has autistic children, children with disability, and adults, adults also use as well? This trampoline park opened a couple of weeks ago there for one adult. Made no money. This is not all about money. These businesses are right there to, you know, to look after people with disabilities and everything else. So, Teacher, I'm asking you, and I'm pleading with you, I'll give you these details. How can a company do this here that pays the way can't get insured? I can't understand that. They tried everything, you know, and in fairness, a couple of years ago there, they couldn't get insured because the premium went up three or four times. And lucky enough, uh, I, I, I contacted a friend of mine who's an insurance company in, in Tipperary and come out and, and done, done us a favour and got insurance. Taoiseach, I'm pleading with you, this is only the start of it. This is, like, where did these people go, like, with disability? And, 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 and I said to you, it's affordable. It's, they're not saying, they're not saying, and what they do is, they walk around with kids. When the, kids, when the kids were schooled, open four days a week. When they were schooled, open seven days a week. Is. And I know myself, I, I think that nearly everybody in this, in this chamber has somebody with a disability. I know someone that has autistic. And they've nowhere to go. And this is the only bit of peace and quiet to get, Taoiseach. I am pleading with you, Taoiseach. Airborne and the dog, can you please help to keep it open? When the 12th of December is a very important day for the children with disabilities in the dog, and I'm sure it's other parts of the country. So I'm only going to ask one more time, Taoiseach, can you please help get the likes of Airborne and, and cut me to that day? Thank and you, show. Deputy. Thank you. And there is some hope for Airborne because Peter Fitzpatrick got this relatively positive response from the Taoiseach. If you wish to send out the details of the situation to me and the background to it, Airborne is the company yeah. you're saying. Um, I fully commend their work in terms of, of, of uh, children with, with, um, 
with disabilities and special needs uh, and the work that it's doing there. Unfortunately, under, under EU solvency uh, to legislation, government is prohibited from setting insurance premiums, so there is no silver bullet. But uh, I'd like to hear more detail in relation to the background to this, uh, and we'll talk to Minister Sean Fleming, um, in particular in, in the Department of Finance, who's dealing with insurance reform, to see if anything we can, can do in relation to that. Um, Thank you, Deputy. Yeah. That's the Taoiseach Michal Martin, uh, who's asking for more information about uh, the situation that Airborne in Dundalk finds itself in. Stephen, thanks uh, for your WhatsApp message. He says he's going into shops. He's still seeing a lot of people without masks and so on. He was in a large supermarket recently. One customer wasn't wearing a mar- mask, and he asked the manager why they weren't stopping people uh, like that, and the manager said it was the customer's own responsibility whether they wear one or not. That's our final word. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money on 